And open your Bibles to Luke chapter 6, or turn on your smartphones or little glowing screens or whatever it is. We're returning to the book of Luke, and uh, next week we're going to jump out of the book of Luke again, because um, I'm going to be preaching a sermon on the election. Um, and how we should think about uh, the political process and um, how we should think about voting and um, maybe more importantly, how we should react um, after the election. <laughs> that might be the more pressing issue. So please be in prayer about that because that's not an easy topic um, to broach. But um, I think we need to think about what the Bible uh, says and how God would have us to think about that. So... Um, uh, but we're in, back in Luke, and chapter 6, uh, starting really just verses 37 and 38. The word of the Lord. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Father, now we pray for the illumination of the Holy Spirit and that um, you would meet us now uh, with your unction and power and anointing that we might understand these two brief verses. Lord, we pray that your word would so transform us through the power of the Holy Spirit that we would leave differently than the way we came in. Lord, we pray now that you would open our hearts and even cause us to have uh, repentant hearts, Lord God, that we would receive your word with humility, Lord, and not pride. We thank you in Christ's name, amen. Well, if there is one thing Christians know, it's this, uh, that secular people may not read the Bible, but there is one verse they all know. <laughs> And that is, judge not, uh, lest you be judged. Actually, I'm not sure why they know it in the King James Version, but they do. <laughs> judge not, lest ye be judged. Judge not, lest you be judged. Uh, that is maybe the most famous verse in the Bible nowadays. Maybe there was a time when John 3.16, for God so loved the world that uh, whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. That may have been at one time the most popular verse, but we're in a place in our culture where no one wants to be judged or feel guilty. Maybe you've made a comment to a friend uh, in the past who was maybe in an illicit relationship about God's design for sexual chastity, and the person responded with, don't judge me. Or, who are you to judge me? And this has a lot to do with our society's aversion 
to feelings of guilt. We've become somewhat a guiltless society, a shame-free society. And that's not entirely bad, but what, it, what it's done is it's made us averse as a culture to grappling with guilt and shame and ultimately sin. We don't want to feel guilt for anything, and conveniently, it always feels like psychologists, if you're a psychologist, please forgive me, I'm not, no offense to the psychologists in the room, if you are one, but psychology always seems to uh, discover things that only perpetuate why no one is to blame for anything they do. And um, so science kind of reflects where our culture is at often. Um, we don't like feeling feelings of guilt. Charles Sell, in a book called Unfinished Business, he illustrates the point I'm making. He says, a man entered a bar and bought a glass of beer and then immediately threw it into the bartender's face. Quickly grabbing a napkin, he helped the bartender dry his face while he apologized with great remorse. I'm so sorry, he said. I have this compulsion to do this. I fight it, but I don't know what to do about it. You'd better do something about your problem, the bartender said. You can be sure I'll remember you, and I'll never serve you another drink until you get help. It was months before the man faced the bartender again, and when he asked for a beer, the bartender refused. The man explained that he'd been seeing a psychiatrist and that his problem was solved. Convinced it was now okay to serve him, the bartender poured him a drink, and the man took the glass and splashed the beer into the barkeeper's astonished face again. I thought you were cured, the shocked bartender screamed. I am, said the man. I still do it, but I don't feel guilty about it anymore. <laughs> Our culture is averse to guilt. As I was reading, I was trying to keep from laughing. Uh, but our culture is averse to guilt. Feeling guilty, it just feels too bad to feel guilty. So instead of fix the problem, we just wash away the guilt. We don't have to feel guilty. And so today, tolerance, is, uh, tolerance of almost anything, of course, is seen as the highest good. And disapproval of another person's actions, well, naturally, is our culture's greatest offense. And this can make it hard to speak meaningfully uh, to anything, right? Because to speak meaningfully to things, you have to use judgment, right? Now, it's obvious people do bad things, and they know that they're guilty. And um, it seems kind of counterintuitive, even for our justice system to work, right? Jesus' words here. Guilt and innocence must be determined, and verdicts must be made. Sentences have to be handed down, uh, or we'd have total chaos. But not only that, even basic assessments about right and wrong can't be made without what? Without using our judgment. Tom Blair of the San Diego Tribune tells of a scene in San Diego Superior Court where two men were on trial for armed robbery. An eyewitness took the stand 
and the prosecutor moved carefully. So, you say you were at the scene when the robbery took place? Yes. And you saw a vehicle leave at a high rate of speed? Yes. And did you observe the two occupants? Yes, two men. And the prosecutor boomed. Are those two men present in the court today? And at this point, Tom Blair observes that the two defendants sealed their fate. They both raised their hands. (laughs) So the human heart is more honest about its guilt often than their head are, right? Our heads are. Our hearts are more honest than our heads. We can deny uh, that we've done wrong, but our hearts often, they'll convict us. And there are times when Jesus endorses judging. We're talking about judging this morning. How does Jesus want us to think about judging others? Matthew 7, Jesus says, watch out for false prophets that come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ferocious wolves. We have to use our judgment to discern who's a false prophet and who is a true prophet, right? We have to use judgment. We have to make judgment calls. Again, in Matthew 18, Jesus says, If your brother or sister sin, go and point out their fault just between the two of you privately. And if they listen to you, you have won them over. So to obey this command, of course, we need to make a determination. We have to judge that our brother or our sister indeed has sinned, right? Again, using our judgment. Jesus himself made judgments, including negative judgments. Matthew 23 and 25, he said to the Pharisees, Woe to you, teachers of the law, and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup, And the dish, but inside, they are full of greed and indulgence. Jesus did more than just disapprove or warn. He declared that certain people were bound for eternal judgment. Right? So if Jesus is saying, don't judge, well, how do we reconcile that with the fact that Jesus often judged people? Even declaring that their actions were worthy of judgment eternally. He goes on to say, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single convert. And when he converts, you make him twice as much the child of hell that you are. Those are tough words. Words of judgment. And the apostles also say that judgment is necessary. John the apostle says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, which is another way of saying, use your judgment and test whether the spirits are from God. For not all spirits are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. 1 John 4 and 1. Paul knew that teachers that propound major errors had to be confronted to protect the church. Right, So we try to be gracious, but sometimes it's necessary, uh, the Christian church, God's people, to identify false teaching. Um, a couple Sundays ago, we read the Apostles' Creed 
And we consider that a mark of orthodoxy, a mark of what it means to belong to the true church and people who are not able to affirm that. We make judgments about whether they are orthodox or a part of the church Catholic, as we call it. We have to make judgments. And even in the Old Testament, God gave Israel judges to settle disputes and enforce the covenant. He established rules and regulations so that they could judge properly. In other words, there's a standard of judgment, the word of God. We have this eternal, transcendent, revelational standard that God has given us to make right moral judgments, right? And of course, daily living requires us to make assessments and use discernment. And Christians have to rightly judge the issues of our day, right? The big issues in the headlines, uh, cloning or gay marriage or the morality of a certain war or conflict. We have to make responsible assessments, daily judgments. It is utterly inescapable for us not to judge. So where in the world does Jesus get off saying, don't judge? Well, this is one of those verses where uh, the context, context makes all the difference in the world. Uh, in seminary, they teach you context is king. Context is king, right? The casual observer who doesn't believe in God and doesn't really consider the Bible to be scripture reads words that are apparent, that seem to be apparent contradictions and say, you know, your entire religion is a bunch of hooey because look at the ways uh, all of the different contradictions in scripture. And so it's important for us to go into the context. And so my job is often to put us in a time machine and take us back 2,000 years to the context of Jesus's words. Context is king. And in verse 37, Jesus says, Judge not, and you will not be judged. What Jesus is trying to do is get his followers to avoid a behavior that was all too common in the Jewish religious life of his time. The habit of judging other people in an uncharitable way so as to even ascribe motive behind people's actions. That's what was going on in Jesus' time, and it was a popular thing to do. Um, as we've been moving through the book of Luke, you may remember that when Jesus healed lepers or crippled people, the crowds would often say, well, they must be more sinful than everyone else. Of course, that's why they're sick, or that's why they're crippled, or that's why they're lepers. It was common to make those types of uh, illegitimate assessments about people, as if uh, you knew anything about someone's past, as if you knew anything about their history, if you knew anything about what God really felt towards another person. This is what Jesus was up against. They were severely critical of others. In fact, the Greek word used here for judge, judge not, is the Greek word krino, which is related to the word krisis, which is where we get the word criticize from. What Jesus is really saying is not, don't make moral judgments about things that people do. 
What he's really saying is, don't be critical of others. Or you could say, don't be judgmental. Don't have a judgmental attitude. Now just take a moment. I'm going to give you like four seconds here. And think of someone in your history, your past, or your life right now who is, everyone's got one, that critical person. The hypercritical person. Maybe it's a cousin or a coworker or a family member or an in-law. That hypercritical person who always comes to the table and, and never seems to have anything to affirm about you or others. There's always a criticism. There's always a judgment. There's always this, uh, uh, this just kind of you know, negative assessment of everything and everyone. We all know hypercritical people who think it's their job to point out imperfections and flaws in other people. I can think of a dozen people really just going through my head right now because we all have those people in our lives. Uh, they're not only critical, they're judgmental. And critical people tend to be incredibly self-righteous. Critical and judgmental people, they don't see through the lenses of grace, they see through the lenses of the law. They live in the law. And some, sometimes they're Christians. They may be the recipient of God's free grace, but they see through the lenses of the law, exacting judgment on everyone's behavior to the letter. Critical people usually suffer from a lack of humility, and they're puffed up in pride. One of the reasons that pride people, proud people are, are proud, let's just call them pride people. They're pride people. One of the reasons that proud people are proud is because pride is one of those things that becomes apparent to everyone else first before it's apparent to the person who's guilty of it. And so, as I'm talking about critical people, as I'm talking about judgmental people, as I'm talking about proud people, in the back of your mind, you should be thinking, am I one of those people? Critical and judgmental people tend to lack mercy for others. This is, this is what's motivating Jesus. And they, they ultimately have not come to grips with how serious their own sins are. And so they're quick to judge others. It was F.B. Meyer who once said that when we see a brother or sister in sin, there, there are two things we do not know. First, we don't know how hard he or she tried not to sin. And second, we don't know the power of the forces that assailed him or her. We also don't know uh, what we would do or have done in the same circumstances. In fact, it's not safe to be transparent around critical people because their knowledge of your imperfections often becomes a liability. You ever had that happen? You ever share something with someone, kind of a shortcoming you had, and later on down the road, they either threw it in your face, or they talked about it to someone else, and the first thing you think is, I should have never done that. I should have never shared with you. 
I should have never been vulnerable and trusted you. And that's what, that's what critical people are. They do not create an environment of trust. They don't create a safe environment. And what Jesus is saying is that Christians ought to be just the opposite. That what it means to reflect the love of God through Jesus in the world is to be opposite of that. Opposite of hypercritical and judgmental. We ought to be safe for sinners to come to. The problem is that it's not even that being critical or critical people or judgmental people aren't speaking the truth necessarily. In fact, often, one of the reasons why their words hurt so much is because there's always a little element of truth in there. But the problem is their words are not seasoned with an equal amount of grace and love. Do you know what I mean by that? When, When someone who you love and loves you, and there's trust between you, says something tough to you, you know often that it comes from a place of love, and they say it in such a way as to kind of gently deliver that, you know, truth spear, right? Because the truth hurts. In fact, one of the reasons we get upset at people who speak the truth to us is because it's true, right? If someone says something that's completely ridiculous, you just kind of laugh it off. But the problem is, is... Everywhere in Scripture, everywhere in the Gospel, Jesus and the apostles command us to speak the truth in what? Love. Because the truth without love scorches, right? It's like like the scorched earth policy. When you deliver true words to people that, that, that are not kind of couched in grace and love, it actually it actually does the opposite effect that you want, right? You want people to see something that's right, but instead, because it doesn't, it's not accompanied in love, it creates so much offense that they're able to tune out what is true because of the tone or the way it was delivered. And this is really important for us. Do you want to know why? Because God has called us to defend the gospel, to proclaim the truth into a world that is sinful, where people often have hard hearts and barriers up against the truth. And so our apologetic, if we're going to be effective, has to be one that is infused and bathed in grace and love and truth. Grace and truth together. Grace and truth together. Everything we do has to be accompanied with a sense of grace and love. And another issue is when we're critical or judgmental, we often hold others uh, to a standard we don't hold ourselves to. Right? We're all quick to forgive ourselves more than anyone else because we all well we know we know it's in our heart, right? We forgive ourselves. We, I mean, we often do, right? Now, sometimes it's true there are things we've done where we can't forgive ourselves, and we need God to fix us and help us and, and communicate to us his love and forgiveness. But for the most part, we just don't judge others with the same... Uh, we just don't judge ourselves with the same standard we judge others by. 
So it's important that our words are filled with truth and grace. And the next thing Jesus says is, do not condemn, and you won't be condemned. One commentator says, that pitiless condemnation which, regardless of circumstances, condemned as sinners beyond the pale of mercy, whole classes of their fellow countrymen, this is what it means to condemn, publicans, Samaritans, and the like, this haughty judgment of others in the case of the dominant sect of the Jews resulted in an undue estimate of themselves. See, do you want to know what judging others perpetually, habitually does? It gets the light off of you. And that's one of the reasons why people do it, because it's easier to cast light on someone else's sin than deal with your own sin. And that's one of the things that was going on in Jesus' day. And Jesus is saying that his disciples, those who follow him, you and I, must be careful how we judge and condemn others. Their rule must be not condemnation, but forgiveness. Now, I mentioned John 3.16 a little earlier, and how many, just, you don't have to recite it, just raising of your hands, know the very next verse, John 3.17. Well, John 3.17 says, For the Son of Man came not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might have life. And do you want to know why Jesus didn't go around condemning people? Because the world already stands condemned. It wasn't that Jesus was saying, everyone is scot-free, everyone you know, is off the hook, no one is really guilty. Jesus doesn't have to come bringing condemnation because the entire world is already condemned in its sins. And so what he comes, what the gospel is, what the gospel means is to declare God's message of reconciliation and forgiveness from that condemnation through Christ. And that's what he calls us to do. He goes on and says, forgive and you will be forgiven. Critical and judgmental people are also unforgiving. We all remember the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18, and I'll read it for you if you have never heard of it. Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began the reckoning, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents, which I've heard people say, they did the math, is like an estimate of something like $500 million today, or something crazy like that. And as he could not pay, his Lord ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Lord, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the Lord of that servant released him and forgave him of the debt. And some versions say, frankly, or outright forgave him of all of the debt. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine owing, maybe you started a business or something, or, you, or you, you're in debt for someone for $500 million, and they're filled with so much compassion because you're unable to pay that they just say, there you go. The slate is wiped clean. But that same servant, as he went out, 
came upon one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. A hundred denarii is nothing. It's, it's, um, it, it's just a drop in the bucket. And seizing him by the throat, he said, pay what you owe. So this servant who had been forgiven for this huge exorbitant amount, after he's forgiven, he goes out and finds someone who owes him hardly anything. And he grabs him by the collar and he says, you better pay me what you owe me. And his fellow servant fell down and besought him and said, have patience with me, just like he had said to his Lord. And I will pay you. And he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay all the debt. And when his fellow servants saw what, he, what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their Lord all that had taken place. Then his Lord summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant. You wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. And should you not also have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, his Lord delivered him to the jailers till he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father, now get this, listen to this. Jesus says, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother or sister from the heart. Those are heavy words. Basically, Jesus is saying, because we've been forgiven, we have no right to be unforgiving. I want you to just take a moment right now and think about that person, maybe, in your life that you haven't forgiven or refused to forgive. That person that you think has offended one, you know, too many times, maybe you've forgiven them in the past, but they've just, they've crossed the line. And you're not going to forgive them. And you know what Jesus says? I mean, these, are the words, these are words from Christ. These are Christ's words. Christ, the lover of our souls. He says, if you will not forgive, my Father in heaven neither will forgive you. Those are tough, tough words that we ought to take to heart. And we ought to really... Now listen, um, you can forgive someone. doesn't mean you have to become best friends with them. It doesn't mean you have to invite them back into your life, especially if they're prone to hurt you and cause damage to you and the people in your family. It's not what it's saying. Jesus is talking about a condition of the heart. He's not talking about going becoming best friends with mortal enemies. He's talking about not holding that person to a standard that God is not holding you to. In other words, the grace you have received Pour out that grace onto others. The forgiveness you've received, reflect it back out into the world. That's what it means to be Christ's followers. And here's what he says. Now remember Luke 36, 36, a few weeks back. Be merciful. This is the message. Be merciful just as your Father in heaven is merciful. Now, how do we reconcile all of this with the fact that God is a judge who hates evil and will one day judge all human beings in righteousness? That's God's business, not yours. Yes, we can proclaim that. Yes, we can make judgments and say, this is sin. God will one day judge. But God is saying, 
that's my business. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. You go out and proclaim forgiveness in my son, the forgiveness that you've received. You know, one of the reasons why it's wrong to condemn people is because you don't know their future. You don't know that maybe, perhaps, God will save that person. That in a year or a month or five years down the road, that person is going to have an encounter with Jesus. You're essentially declaring illicit knowledge about the future that you just aren't privy to. And so Jesus says, don't condemn either. Don't judge them and don't condemn them. And he says in verse 38, and this is really interesting, Jesus uses an illustration. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over will be put into your lap. For with the measure that you use, it will be measured back again to you. And he takes this image from the marketplace in the first century where when you went to go buy grain, the merchant would take a cone and he would put it between his knees and he'd fill up this cone with grain, grain or corn or wheat. And what would happen is he'd put the lid on and he'd shake it so that it would settle in the bottom. And then he'd pour some more grain in there and he'd cover the lid and he'd shake it again and then he'd smash it down to the bottom of the cone to make room for more. This is like, you know, you go to the market and you're like, oh, I want, you know, um, I want Shlomo. That he always, you know, he always gives me a lot. I mean, I'm just thinking of Jewish names for a century, right? You know, you know when you go to like McDonald's or something and they give you, order like your value meal and they give you your Coke and you pop the lid and there's like two inches of just air and you're like, hey, top this thing off, right? I mean, that's the person you want and you're happy with the people who top you off. Well, that's what Jesus is saying here. This image of the marketplace where your grain is topped off, shaken together, pressed down with more room. And then what they would do is when it was stuffed to capacity, they would drill a little hole in the lid and pour even more to where it was just overflowing. And you walked away like, I'm going back to that guy or that girl. I'm, you know, right? Because it was, it was this super abundance. It was this kind of uh, gracious, overflowing um, attitude of generosity from the merchant. And this is what God is saying. When you are magnanimous towards your fellow human beings, when you are gracious, when you are compassionate, when you are merciful towards other people, God himself will repay you in such a way that is overflowing more than you could even handle with grace, mercy, and blessings. Does that, does that, does that make sense? That's essentially what God is saying. Because if you remember the previous section, Jesus said, don't do things to other people to be repaid by them. Remember that? You know, don't repay evil for evil. Even the people who you know you can't get anything back from still lend to them and do good to them. What God is ultimately saying is, human beings are not the people, are not the ones you should look for repayment from. I am, God is saying. I'm the one who will repay you, right? He that gives to the poor does what? Lends to God. Don't pray in public for other men to see you, but go in your private prayer closet and pray secretly, and your Father who sees you in secret will do what? Reward you. Some versions say reward you openly. And the idea is of God's bountiful mercy. 
Paul says in Romans 2 and 1, You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on another, for on whatever grounds you judge the other, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Can you think of someone right now that you are being critical of unfairly? Can you think of someone you won't forgive or be reconciled with? Jesus wants us to be big-hearted people. And the best place, so here's, here's, the, uh, here's the task for you, okay? <clears throat> Some, I'm speaking in somewhat abstractions about people outside of this building and outside of your, maybe your daily life. Uh, the best place to practice magnanimity and big-heartedness is right here with the people that you worship with. In fact, in many ways, this is a proving ground for our Christian virtue. Because if you can't love the person sitting next to you on the aisle, behind you or in front of you, how are you going to do it with other people? If you can't overlook a minor infraction or an offense with the people you go to church with, right? the, the body of Christ, the family of God, how can you do that out there? You know, people, uh, people get offended over some of the, the smallest infractions. You know, I remember, and I may have shared this in the past, but I remember we were at a church one time in California of about 1,000 people, and there are three different services, so people leaving one service or walking by in the aisle, people coming into the next service. And I remember talking to someone who said, you know, I walk by that person every Sunday, and they never say hello to me. And I said, you know, they're probably thinking the exact same thing about you. Be the change in the world, right? Instead of cursing the darkness, uh, light a candle in it, right? That, I don't know why that person's so unfriendly. Then be friendly to them. I don't know why that person gives me the stank eye every time I look at them. Smile at them. Love them. Be big-hearted. Be magnanimous. Show the love and grace that Christ showed you. May we be people who are hard to offend. And when we're offended, be quick to forgive. May we be people who always recognize that we're sinners saved by grace. And may we extend that grace, the grace we've received, to others. Let's pray. Grant now we pray, O God that the words which we have heard this day with our outward ears may through your grace be so grafted inwardly in our hearts that they may bring forth in us the fruit of good living to honor and praise your name through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Now at this time as our musicians come... um, We don't stop worshiping. We continue to worship the Lord, even in our giving. Um, So let us worship and respond to this message of God's grace by worshiping the Lord uh, also in this way.